poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, with you for the next hour with poetry and music. And let's first ease in with some music.
says, big data with dangerous. Today we will start with Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher and classical scholar who lived between 1844 and 1900. Nietzsche deeply influenced many poets, philosophers, artists and psychologists of the 1900s. Nietzsche was a severe critic of religion, especially Christianity. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he proclaimed that God is dead. This was his dramatic way of saying that most people no longer believed in God. Thus, religion could no longer serve as a foundation for moral values. Nietzsche believed that the time had come to examine traditional values critically. He encouraged a higher man inspired towards a higher ideal. He argued that people are frequently willing to increase their pain, strain or tension to accomplish tasks that allow them to feel power, competence or strength. Over the prevailing attitude of hedonism at the time, which holds that human behaviour is inspired merely by a desire to experience pleasure and avoid pain. Nietzsche's ideal was the Uberman or Superman, a passionate individual who learns to control his or her passions and use them in a creative manner. This superior human being channels the energy of instinctual drives into higher, more creative and less objectionable forms. Nietzsche believed that such sublimation of energy is far more valuable than the suppression of the instincts urged by Christianity and other religions. This piece of The Flies of the Marketplace is from his seminal poetic novel, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, written between 1883 and 1885, depicting the travels and speeches of Zarathustra. The Flies in the Marketplace Flee, my friend, into thy solitude. I see thee deafened with the noise of the great men, and stung all over with the stings of the little ones. Admirably do forest and rock know how to be silent with thee. Resemble again the tree which thou lovest, the broad-branched one. Silently and attentively it o'erhangeth the sea. Where solitude endeth, there beginneth the market-place. And where the market-place beginneth, there beginneth also the noise of the great actors, and the buzzing of the poison-flies. In the world even the best things are worthless without those who represent them, those representers the people call great men. Little do the people understand what is great, that is to say, the creating agency, but they have a taste for all representers and actors of great things. Around the devisers of new values revolveth the world, invisibly it revolveth, but around the actors revolve the people and the glory, such is the course of things. Spirit hath the actor, but little conscience of the spirit, he believeth always in that wherewith he maketh believe most strongly in himself. Tomorrow he hath a new belief, and the day after one still newer, Sharp perceptions hath he, like the people, and changeable humours. To upset, that meaneth with him to prove. To drive mad, that meaneth with him to convince. And blood is counted by him as the best of all arguments. A truth which only glideth into fine ears, he calleth falsehood and trumpery. Verily he believeth only in gods that make a great noise in the world. Full of clattering buffoons is the marketplace, and the people glory in their great men. These are for them the masters of the hour.
but the hour presseth them, so they press thee, and also from thee they want yea or nay. Alas, thou wouldst set thy chair betwixt for and against. On account of those absolute and impatient ones, be not jealous, thou lover of truth. Never yet did truth cling to the arm of an absolute one. On account of those abrupt ones, return into thy security. Only in the marketplace is one assailed by yea or nay. Slow is the experience of all deep fountains. Long have they to wait until they know what hath fallen into their depths. Away from the marketplace and from fame taketh place all that is great. Away from the marketplace and from fame have ever dwelt the devisers of new values. Flee, my friend, into thy solitude. I see thee stung all over by the poisonous flies. Flee thither where a rough, strong breeze bloweth. Flee into thy solitude. Thou hast lived too closely to the small and the pitiable. Flee from their invisible vengeance. Towards thee they have nothing but vengeance. Raise no longer an arm against them. Innumerable are they, and it is not thy lot to be a fly-flap. Innumerable are the small and pitiable ones, and of many a proud structure raindrops and weeds have been the ruin. Thou art not stone, but already hast thou become hollow by the numerous drops. Thou wilt yet break and burst by the numerous drops. Exhausted I see thee by poisonous flies. Bleeding I see thee, and torn at a hundred spots, and thy pride will not even upbraid. Blood they would have from thee in all innocence, blood their bloodless souls crave for, and they sting, therefore, in all innocence. But thou, profound one, thou sufferest too profoundly even from small wounds, and ere thou hadst recovered, the same poison worm crawled over thy hand. Too proud art thou to kill these sweet tooths, but take care lest it be thy fate to suffer all their poisonous injustice. They buzz around thee also with their praise. Obtrusiveness is their praise. They want to be close to thy skin and thy blood. They flatter thee as one flattereth a god or devil. They whimper before thee as before a god or devil. What doth it come to? Flatterers are they and whimperers and nothing more. Often also do they show themselves to thee as amiable ones, but that hath ever been the prudence of the cowardly. Yea, the cowardly are wise. They think much about thee with their circumscribed souls. Thou art always suspected by them. Whatever is much thought about is at last thought suspicious. They punish thee for all thy virtues. They pardon thee in their inmost hearts only for thine errors. Because thou art gentle and of upright character, thou sayest, blameless are they for their small existence. But there circumscribed souls think, blameable is all great existence. Even when thou art gentle towards them, they still feel themselves despised by thee, and they repay thy beneficence with secret maleficence. Thy silent pride is always counter to their taste. They rejoice if once thou be humble enough to be frivolous.
What we recognize in a man, we also irritate in him. Therefore be on your guard against the small ones. In thy presence they feel themselves small, and their baseness gleameth and gloweth against thee in invisible vengeance. Source thou not how often they became dumb when thou approachedst them, and how their energy left them like the smoke of an extinguishing fire? Yea, my friend, the bad conscience art thou of thy neighbours, for they are unworthy of thee. Therefore they hate thee and would fain suck thy blood. Thy neighbours will always be poisonous flies. What is great in thee? That itself must make them more poisonous and always more fly-like. Flee, my friend, into thy solitude, and thither where a rough, strong breeze bloweth. It is not thy lot to be a fly-flap. Thus spake Zarathustra. Run, there's a fire burning me down. Like a rolling, like a 
like a rolling stone. You are listening to The Bohemian Beat, produced at Bay FM in Byron Bay and heard nationally across the community radio network. We just heard Ivy and Gold with Not Had Enough, and before that, Robert Lee reading of The Flies of the Marketplace from Thus Spoke Zarathustra by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. German poet and writer Hermann Hesse, who lived between 1877 and 1962, was deeply influenced by Nietzsche, exploring the necessity for individuals to overcome their social training and traditional ideas to seek their own way. The following poem by Hesse is called All Deaths. died all deaths, and I am going to die all deaths again. Die the death of the wood in the tree, die the stone death in the mountain, earth death in the sand, leaf death in the crackling summer grass, and the poor bloody human death. I will be born again. Flowers, trees and grass, I will be born again. Fish and deer, bird and butterfly, and out of every form, longing will drag me up the stairways to the last suffering, up to the suffering of men. fist of longing commands both poles of life to bend to each other. Yet often, and many times over, you will hunt me down from death to birth on the painful track of the creations. The glorious track of the creations.
be my pillow Take my hand Let me sleep In the coolness of your shadow In the silence of your deep Darkness, darkness, hide the earth For the things that cannot be with Darkness, Darkness, and before that, German poet Hermann Hesse with All Deaths, read by Maxim. Hermann Hesse's main themes deals with man's breaking out of the established modes of civilization to find his essential spirit. And like his hero before him, Nietzsche also questioned Christian morality. We must consider that the Christian value system had lost its status in the modern era. From the Enlightenment onward, the continuing development of the Western mind social conscience, its growing recognition of unconscious prejudices and injustices, and its increasing historical knowledge shed new light on the actual practice of the Christian religion over the centuries. The Christian injunction to love and serve all humanity and the high valuation of the individual soul now stood in sharp counterpoint to Christianity's long history of bigotry and violent intolerance, its forcible conversion of other peoples, its ruthless suppression of other cultural perspectives, its persecution of heretics, its crusades against Muslims, its oppression of Jews, its deprecation of women's spirituality and exclusion of women from positions of religious authority its association with slavery and the colonialistic exploitation, its pervasive spirit of prejudice and religious arrogance maintained against all those outside the fold. Measured by its own standards, Christianity fell woefully short of ethical greatness, and many alternative systems from ancient Stoicism to modern liberalism and socialism seem to provide equally inspiring programs for human activity without the baggage of implausible supernatural belief. Let us return to a little more of Nietzsche's philosophical novel, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. This piece, The Wanderer, begins part three. Then, when it was about midnight, Zarathustra went his way over the ridge of the isle, that he might arrive early in the morning at the other coast, because there he meant to embark. For there was a good roadstead there, in which foreign ships also liked to anchor. Those ships took many people with them, who wished to cross over from the Happy Isles, so when Zarathustra thus ascended the mountain, he thought on the way of his many solitary wanderings from youth onwards, and how many mountains and ridges and summits he had already climbed. I am a wanderer and mountain climber, said he to his heart. I love not the plains, and it seemeth I cannot long sit still. And whatever may still overtake me as fate and experience, a wandering will be therein, and a mountain climbing. In the end one experienceth only oneself. 
The time is now past when accidents could befall me, and what could now fall to my lot which would not already be mine own. It returneth only, it cometh home to me at last, mine own self, and such of it as hath been long abroad, and scattered among things and accidents. And one thing more do I know, I stand now before my last summit, and before that which hath been longest reserved for me. Ah, my hardest path must I ascend, ah, I have begun my lonesomest wandering. He, however, who is of my nature, doth not avoid such an hour, the hour that saith unto him, Now only dost thou go the way to thy greatness, summit and abyss, these are now comprised together. Thou goest the way to thy greatness, now hath it become thy last refuge, what was hitherto thy last danger. Thou goest the way to thy greatness, it must now be thy best courage that there is no longer any path behind thee. Thou goest the way to thy greatness, here shall no one steal after thee. Thy foot itself hath effaced the path behind thee, and over it standeth written, Impossibility. And if all ladders henceforth fail thee, then must thou learn to mount upon thine own head. How couldst thou mount upward otherwise? Upon thine own head, and beyond thine own heart, now must the gentlest in thee become the hardest. He who hath always much indulged himself, sickeneth at last by his much indulgence, praises on what maketh hardy. I do not praise the land where butter and honey flow. To learn to look away from oneself is necessary in order to see many things. This hardiness is needed by every mountain climber. He, however, who is obtrusive with his eyes as a discerner, how can he ever see more of anything than its foreground? But thou, O Zarathustra, wouldst view the ground of everything, and its background. Thus must thou mount even above thyself, up, upwards, until thou hast even thy stars under thee. Yea, to look down upon myself, and even upon my stars, that only would I call my summit, that hath remained for me as my last summit. Thus spake Zarathustra to himself while ascending, comforting his heart with harsh maxims, for he was sore at heart, as he had never been before. And when he had reached the top of the mountain ridge, behold, there lay the other sea spread out before him, and he stood still and was long silent. The night, however, was cold at this height, and clear and starry. I recognize my destiny, said he at last, sadly. Well, I am ready. Now hath my last lonesomeness begun. Ah, this sombre, sad sea below me! Ah, this sombre, nocturnal vexation! Ah, fate and sea! To you must I now go down. Before my highest mountain do I stand, and before my longest wandering. Therefore must I first go deeper down than I ever ascended. Deeper down into pain than I ever ascended, even into its darkest flood. So willeth my fate. Well, I am ready. Whence come the highest mountains? So did I once ask. Then did I learn that they come out of the sea. That testimony is inscribed on their stones and on the walls of their summits. Out of the deepest must the highest come to its height. 
Thus spake Zarathustra on the ridge of the mountain where it was cold. When, however, he came into the vicinity of the sea, and at last stood alone amongst the cliffs, then had he become weary on his way, and eagerer than ever before. Everything as yet sleepeth, said he, even the sea sleepeth. Drowsily and strangely doth its eye gaze upon me. But it breatheth warmly, I feel it, and I feel also that it dreameth, it tosseth about dreamily on hard pillows. Hark, hark, how it groaneth with evil recollections, or evil expectations. Ah, I am sad along with thee, thou dusky monster, and angry with myself even for thy sake. Ah, that my hand hath not strength enough, gladly indeed would I free thee from evil dreams. And while Zarathustra thus spake, he laughed at himself with melancholy and bitterness. What, Zarathustra, said he, wilt thou even sing consolation to the sea? Ah, thou amiable fool, Zarathustra, thou too blindly confiding one, but thus hast thou ever been, ever hast thou approached confidently all that is terrible. Every monster wouldst thou caress, a whiff of warm breath, a little soft tuft on its paw, and immediately wert thou ready to love and lure it. Love is the danger of the lonesomest one, love to anything, if it only live. Laughable, verily, is my folly and my modesty in love. Thus spake Zarathustra, and laughed thereby a second time. Then, however, he thought of his abandoned friends, and, as if he had done them a wrong with his thoughts, he upbraided himself because of his thoughts, and forthwith it came to pass that the laugher wept, with anger and longing wept Zarathustra bitterly. without skin oh so soothing lovely night free myself from heavy guilt on my shoulder stillness in the cold peace comes crawling up my bone in a solitary moon I am moving away from you I am moving away from you to 
From Thus Spoke Zarathustra from Audiobook Classics, read by John Lee. Nietzsche influenced Franz Kafka, though they wrote from different perspectives. Nietzsche gives birth to a new man who rises out of the ashes of the nihilistic, God-free world to create new laws and new ethics. Kafka, on the other hand, hopelessly tortures his protagonists, ridicules their naivety, mocks their beliefs, and aimlessly puts them in situations with bureaucratic, cruel tyrannies that negates any possibility of becoming. Franz Kafka, who lived between 1883 and 1924, was a Czech writer who gained worldwide fame only after World War II. Only a few of his short stories were published during his lifetime. This next piece from Kafka, Before the Law, discusses the story of a man who went to seek the knowledge and access to the law. The man was not given access to the law by a gatekeeper. And a language warning for the track that follows, Before the Law. Before the Law, by Franz Kafka. I'm Mike Vendetti. Before the Law sits a gatekeeper. To this gatekeeper comes a man from the country who asks to gain entry into the law. But the gatekeeper says he cannot grant him entry at the moment. The man thinks about it and then asks if he will be allowed to come in later on. It is possible, says the gatekeeper, but not now. At the moment the gate to the law stands open, as always, and the gatekeeper walks to the side so the man bends over in order to see through the gate into the inside. When the gatekeeper notices that, he laughs and says, If it tempts you so much, try it in spite of my prohibition. But take note, I am powerful, and I am only the most lowly gatekeeper. But from room to room stand gatekeepers, each more powerful than the other. I can't endure even one glimpse of the third. The man from the country has not expected such difficulties. The law should always be accessible for everyone, he thinks, but as he now looks more closely at the gatekeeper in his fur coat and his large pointed nose, thin black tartar's beard, he decides that it would be better to wait until he gets permission to go inside. The gatekeeper gives him a stool and allows him to sit down at the side in front of the gate. There he sits for days in years. He makes many attempts to be let in, and he wears the gatekeeper out with his requests. The gatekeeper often interrogates him briefly, questioning him about his homeland and many other things, but they are indifferent questions. 
the kind great men put, and at the end he always tells him once more that he cannot let him inside yet. The man who has equipped himself with many things for his journey spends everything, no matter how valuable, to win over the gatekeeper. The latter takes it all, but as he does so, says, I am taking this only so that you do not think you have failed to do anything. During the many years the man observes the gatekeeper almost continuously. He forgets the other gatekeepers, and this one seems to him the only obstacle for entry into the law. He curses the unlikely circumstance, in the first years thoughtlessly and out loud. Later, as he grows old, he still mumbles to himself. He becomes childish, and, since in the long years since studying the gatekeeper, he has come to know the fleas in the fur collar, he even asks the fleas to help him persuade the gatekeeper. Finally, his eyesight grows weak, and he does not know whether things are really darker around him or whether his eyes are merely deceiving him. But he recognizes now in the darkness an illumination which breaks inextinguishably out of the gateway to the law. Now he no longer has much time to live. Before his death he gathers in his head all his experiences of the entire time up into one question which he has not yet put to the gatekeeper. He waves to him, since he can no longer lift up his stiffening body. The gatekeeper has to bend way down to him. For the great difference has changed things to the disadvantage of the man. "'What do you still want to know, then?' asks the gatekeeper. "'You are insatiable.' "'Everyone strives after the law,' says the man. "'So how is it that in these many years no one except me has requested entry?' The gatekeeper sees that the man is already dying, and in order to reach his diminishing sense of hearing, he shouts at him, Here no one can gain entry, since this entry was assigned only to you. I'm going now to close it. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Thank you.
with their law and before that from audible.com mike vendetti reading a piece by france kafka called before the law both kafka and nietzsche were influenced by johann wolfgang von goethe a german poet novelist and playwright who lived between 1749 and 1832 he ranks among the most important and influential writers of modern european literature His masterpiece is the verse play Faust, which he completed a few months before his death. Faust is a man who desires complete knowledge, unlimited experience of life and self-perfection. Guided by Mephistopheles, the devil, he moves from one realm of human experience to another without ever attaining full satisfaction. This next piece from Faust, part two, act two, is where the devil, Mephistopheles, returns to Faust's study from part one. He puts an unconscious Faust on the bed and begins to gloat about the troubles he has caused him. (coughs) 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 To have to carry fools like this around can even break a devil's back, I've found. Poor wretch. Lie down and rest in here, you hopelessly besotted lover. If Helen's knocked you out, I fear your wits won't easily recover. Ah. It's just the same here. Faust's study. 
Everywhere I look, nothing has altered, not a single book. The coloured panes are duller now, I think. More spider's webs, too, than they used to be. This paper's yellowed and the ink has dried, but all's in order still. And this must be the very quill Faust used when he assigned himself to me. Yes, inside there, a drop of blood's congealed with which the devil's document was sealed. It ought to be put on display. A real collector's piece, I'd say. And this old fur, still hanging on the door. In fact, I have a fancy to put on this reeking gown. I might be able to show off and play the don. But what's the use of such a title when there's no one to impress with my great knowledge? Aha! Of course, the bell.
Gil Scott Heron with Me and the Devil. And before that, an excerpt from a dramatization of Goethe's Faust from Nexus Audiobooks. The end of the hour is upon us, and I hope you've enjoyed the show today. And make sure you tune in again next week. Same beat time, same bohemian frequency. And for more information, check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com. We will end with a track from Cage the Elephant called Come a Little Closer. Thank you for joining me on the Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy. Stand up.